Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Sabina Andron, postdoctoral fellow in cities and urbanism at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Dr. Andron, and welcome to our channel. Hi, Victoria. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm super excited to to talk uh, with you about your new book, Urban Surfaces, Graffiti and the Right to the City, Space Materiality and the Normative, published by Routledge in 2024. And, you know, as usual, um, I I want to start by uh, getting to know you and your work better. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more how you came to this project, you know, what got you interested in graffiti, urbanism, both as a, you know, as a singular research trajectory, as well as an intersectional point of looking at cities? Hmm. Sure. Uh, I actually like how you phrase that question a lot, because I think my interest in graffiti really developed, on the one hand, through just observing cities. You know, I, I'd li- I'm a city girl, <laughs> so I like, I've always liked just wandering the streets, um, taking photos, I think, that influenced my ways of seeing and knowing the environment a lot as well through the photographic lens. And I've been doing this for the longest time, um, actually ever since my undergraduate. Um, but then I suppose I, I started paying more attention to the zones of friction, you know, like I, I started being interested in noticing, okay, let's, let's call it graffiti for now, noticing the graffiti, all these marks that that weren't supposed to be there, right? But they were still there and they were adding a layer of interest and tension and a visual layer that was quite different, again, from what urban environments were meant to look like or... So um, I suppose, yeah, I, I maybe I should say something about my, um, my my career trajectory in a way as well because I I studied literature and then I studied I did a master's in a discipline called visual culture which might sound <laughs> a bit unusual to some listeners or maybe very familiar to others. And I suppose that master's as well in visual culture really expanded my understanding of a way of critically viewing how cities, because that was my interest, how cities are made through images. So kind of the role of images in creating different narratives of the city and different regimes of order and creativity and so on. Um, and then it all, I suppose, came together with um, PhD when I started my PhD at the Bartlett School of Architecture at University College London. And that was a PhD 
in architectural and urban history and theory. So this was when I learned how to focus my interest on space and kind of learned how to articulate, I suppose, critical theories of architecture and space and the production of space. So I think this book kind of comes, pulls together all these different strands. On the one hand, uh, text and writing and writing in space, physicality, materiality of writing as well. Um, The power of images to do things in the world. And then how these together, how they shape space. Fascinating. And, you know, I I totally, I mean, you know, I'm liking the words right now because, you know, the cold that you're hearing is also interfering with my brain. But what I wanted to say (laughs) is the fact that I really love this trajectory uh, of visual studies and I share it to a certain extent because during my, my PhD I also became interested in graffiti um, and then you know I kind of had this this period you know like this honeymoon period with it but in um, in the Japanese and Chinese context um, <laughs> thank you and I, I never abandoned it you know but it's like okay it's it's on a shelf somewhere <laughs> right but um, I, I absolutely understand the and support this connection between literature and visual studies. And I think it's it's a very productive and interesting way to, to look at cities and to look at what happens around us, specifically now that, you know, we're, you know, social media and, and all sorts of other, right, um, visual uh, tools are at our disposal. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was very happy when you said that you had a master's in visual studies and then you kind of discovered the city through through that lens. And, you know, it's uh, your love for, for images and for, for taking pictures. It's absolutely coming coming through the book and all the pictures you, you have in there are astonishing. So I really want the listeners to, to know that and to um, definitely take a look. Uh, can I make? Can I just make a note there? Because um, there is one particular thing about the images in the book which uh, you m- might have wanted to pick up on later, but I'll just bring it into the discussion now. There are a few missing images in the book, um, and the funny thing about that was that I had after the book came out, I got a lot of messages from friends and you know people who picked it up, and they were like. Abina, have you seen, like, there's a mistake. There's a mistake in the UK edition. There's a mistake. Oh, my God. Is this just a draft? What happened? Some images are missing. Dear listeners, this is on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is on purpose because um, when I submitted my full image pack to the publisher, to Routledge, they singled out, I think it's a total of five images, um, which they said they couldn't publish because of potential infringement of copyright because the content of those images was too close to being identifiable as having been produced by a single artist. Mm. In other words, it was a pretty mural. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And because it was a pretty mural the risk the publisher didn't want to take on the risk 
of being sued for copyright infringement because we didn't have permission from the artist. Now, from my point of view, I didn't want to do that because part of the argument I'm making in the book is that we should be moving away from the categories we have of graffiti street art. This has aesthetic value. This doesn't have aesthetic value. Um, This, because it's a mural, we think of it as being attributed to a single creative mind and hand, right, to an artist. Whereas if we have an image that shows us a multitude of tags, graffiti tags, for example, we don't think that we have to contact those people to ask for their permission to not infringe copyright. You know what I mean? So this was, for me, it's a core tension in the book. And I'm saying, well, we should be moving away from these categories and we should think of the collective power of all of these ways of occupying surfaces and writing in the city and drawing in the city. So when they said we should remove these these images, I said, let's keep them as empty frames to signal the absence. I think it's very important. I think, you know, this could be a book in itself. In fact, <laughs> I think you probably like this. In fact, I was thinking, because I struggled, I struggled quite a bit with this conversation, you know, what, what's happening to these images that we have to take down and censor, not show, right? Uh, the ab- their abs- I wanted to show their absences. And then I was thinking it would be great to make a book. <laughs> we could, you could imagine like a book of 100 pages, which is 100 images that you can't show. So it's a book of images, but none of the images are in it. And instead of the actual image, you would just get like a, an explanation of the reason you can't show it. <laughs> which which is i try to do a bit of that in the captions of these missing images which is to say so one of them we couldn't show it because it was copyright infringement for a logo a brand logo for example or you know the the logo of the olympics or something like that so um yeah that was an interesting process for me and i hope it's interesting for the readers as well beyond the the actual pictures you can see in the book of which there are many still to reflect on the um, the ones that are absent amazing that's a very important conversation and i hope you know it 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 happens you know at at other other times as well and you know bringing more more minds to 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 the table because yeah, copyright and, and graffiti and murals is definitely something we, we must explore further. And uh, <clears throat> sorry, um, you know, just to, to um, kind of follow the, the trajectory of the book, uh, we have four chapters and they're accompanied by the introduction and the conclusions. And the book shows how surfaces complicate issues of public space and private property, which underlie most struggles over spatial justice. And that was a quote from page five. And it's also an exercise in foregrounding signs and surfaces. And, you know, here I'm, I'm very interested in this relationship between signs and surfaces and their position and meaning for cities and uh, for uh, meaning creating spaces in urban environments. Um, I came to this late, you know, in my thinking trajectory, because 
when I initially started planning this research, and uh, this is a book that very much came out of my PhD research. Um, and you know, at the beginning, I just I wanted to investigate graffiti, and I wanted to investigate kind of the spatiality of graffiti. So rather than doing an ethnography, and again, most of your readers will probably understand this. Uh, so instead of investigating the subject by interviewing people who are involved with it, right? Whether that's the makers of graffiti, the graffiti artists, or people who manage it in one way or another. What I decided to do was to kind of bypass people. Um, I didn't want to do any interviews of people. And then I came up with this idea that I should interview walls, right? So um, kind of paying attention at graffiti in situ, in its location. But then as soon as I started to do that and to do it in kind of a focused way, I realized, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm using this concept of graffiti, but I'm looking at these surfaces, I'm looking at these walls, and there are so many other different types of marks and signs that I see here. So, so what is this universe? Because in many ways, it seems to me, and again, through these observations, um, that the totality of these signs, their layering, their accumulation, when I say these signs, dear listeners, imagine, and just pay attention when you walk down the street, um, municipal signage as well, traffic signs, directional signs, public notices, uh, scribbles, placards, memorial plaques, like the list is endless. So there's a semiotic richness, right? A richness of signage, of the creation of meaning on the surfaces of cities. So that's when, that was kind of a revelation moment or a turning point for me where I said, well, actually, this is what hasn't been investigated yet because this communicative universe that we see everywhere around us in cities. Think about billboards. Think about shop signs. Just There's such a multitude of communication that takes place on the vertical but also horizontal surfaces of cities, right, on pavements. So this kind of multitude is a, is a spatial typology in itself. It's a, it's a distinctive type of space. And that's what I wanted to investigate. And part of what I'm trying to argue in this chapter that you're talking about now, um, and the chapter is called uh, Surface Semiotics, a Manual for Knowing Surfaces. Oh, I had a question after that. Yes. But sure, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah. no, this is a final point. Well, part of what I'm trying to argue here is that we can't understand surfaces without signs just like we can't understand signs without surfaces absolutely and you know i mean it's um it's 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 something that it's so uh pervasive and so ingrained right in the city um and you know we, we see it every day but we don't necessarily think about it because it's so normal in so many ways right to to us um so i think that that was just 
amazing that was brilliant <laughs> to, to just put at the at the beginning and actually the question that i just mentioned about chapter one right was um about the surface scapes right and and the the connection between semiotics right the formation of surface semiotics and and this concept surface spaces and i just wanted to hear a little bit more about the two or you know any any combination that you you would like to tell us more about mm. so i think that <laughs> I'm always a bit wary that the language of this chapter is a bit cumbersome or it feels a bit heavy or too academic. So let's do an exercise of trying to unpack that and kind of demystify it because I say semiotics and some people's the skin on the backs of their heads starts to crinkle, you know? Oh, no. um, yeah. <laughs> um, think about it this way. Think about it as the 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 sum, the totality of the ways in which meaning is produced around you. How is meaning produced? How how do spaces communicate? How do you know how you're supposed to behave in cities? How do you know where you're supposed to go? How do you know what attracts you? Why do you take a photo of something? So these are all these are all things that are articulated through this concept of semiotics. And mm, the the word that you asked about the surface scape um this again might sound heavy but i really think it's not if you think about all its sister concepts that we use so frequently right landscape cityscape what is it it is a um, a common set of features that a certain area or place has, right? So when I say landscape, I refer to the features, the atmospheres, the characteristics of the land, right, that I'm looking at. So when I say surface scape, I refer to the features, the characteristics, the atmospheres of the surface, of the world. And there are so many of them, you know, if you start paying attention. I'm a geek and this is what I do. And probably, like you say, most people background this because there is no reason for them to pay attention. But it can be interesting once you start, if it, if it clicks a bit. Um, there's so many interesting, you know, when you get like... Um, old paint that's starting to chip away from the wall or if you get like little weeds that grow through the cracks between bricks and you get different kind of voices fighting for the same territories um when you get little responses of message over message over mural over stencil and so on like at some point we all noticed one of these things i'm sure but what i'm trying to do here is to say maybe there's a way to define this as a field of study and a field of practice as well in documentation and creativity and production and experience you know which is the surface scape and we can have some fun with it as well it's it's not a it's not a complicated analytical thing it can be fun and lively and interesting absolutely and you know this reminds me of a of a story of you know like <clears throat> there's a there's a mural somewhere in the united states and then it was um you know power washed and then there's this uh, this face right that comes 
comes back by itself on it, like the the initial uh, mural comes back and like nothing can erase it. And, and you know, it's kind of like the, the story of, of the town and then, you know, everybody kind of goes there to see the ghost mural. But I think it's a good example of, of you know, what, what you're saying of the surfaces and the stories and everything that happens on the surface and the communicative aspect of it. Um, that can engage a lot of um, actors, I would say. Correct. Yes, I believe uh, that. And uh, I think that's that's how we're going towards chapter two, uh, Beyond Art and Crime, A Critical History of graf- Graffiti and Street Art. Because there we see the representations of graffiti and street art in media and public consciousness and the administrative measures that have transformed these pra- uh, practices through the years on page 58. And here uh, we see uh, London and New York. And, you know, I was very curious to to have you walk us through the evolution from art to crime and vice versa in these two locales, because it seems that there is so much communication that happened and so much uh, back and forth in both cities. This is... Um... This is a story that has been told before in many ways. Um, the story of graffiti, modern graffiti. So we're not talking about people writing on walls. Uh, that is a much longer story. But the story of modern aerosol, sharpie graffiti in the modern city, um, which started in the very late 60s, early 70s in Philadelphia, New York, And then it kind of developed as an aesthetic style and was exported all over the world. And in fact, I was reflecting on this these past few days and thinking how incredible it is, really, if you consider what a strong, what a powerful um, cultural export and movement this has been, because this wild style graffiti that what we call now wild style graffiti that developed during the 70s in New York and in the United States is still now prevalent in most parts of the world. Like the same impetus, the same kind of drive to write on walls manifests itself through those visual codes that were developed during that decade in New York. It's quite remarkable what a strong cultural currency graffiti is. Um, And in fact, it's quite remarkable, even if you think about how in many countries, and I've seen this, I've seen examples of it in many countries that don't use the Latin alphabet much of the graffiti that you see on walls in those countries is still written with Latin characters. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's, it's useful to reflect on this a bit. Um, what I'm trying to do in this chapter is, like you say, tell a story of how this started as a movement and then immediately how it was appropriated on the one hand, by municipal authorities who were trying to keep it in control and very much used it as a scapegoat, particularly in New York, which was a city 
that was on the verge of bankruptcy and I had many, many problems. And graffiti, particularly because it was happening inside train carriages and, you know, it it was seen as this, as this kind of blight, this kind of virus that's out of control and taking over the city. And, and so it got criminalized and it got criminalized in 1972. And with that, Jeff Farrell, um, a brilliant criminologist who he's now retired, he was based at the University of um, Texas. He said something that I really like. Let me think if I can um, quote him directly on this. He said, it's, it's not... Uh, the the problem the authorities reaction is what made graffiti into a problem not the other way around mm. so, so it's it's the it's the reaction that defined the problem and and i completely agree with this so i'm trying to explain in this chapter how the discourse that got formed around graffiti as crime very much shaped the trajectory and the path of what we understand today as graffiti. You know, I was um, many years ago, I did some um, kind of outreach classes and it was teaching for secondary school kids here in London. And we would talk about graffiti and I remember so well one of them, and these are like, okay, 14-year-olds, maybe even younger, and one of them saying, oh, but these graffiti writers, I know they're all vandals and they're like, you know, like nasty characters. And I called him out, but how do you know? Have you ever met a graffiti writer, you know? And he's like, no, I haven't, but I just know. And, and I found it very interesting how there is this kind of received, ingrained perception we have and why is it where does it come from um and and i think this originates in new york in the 70s and throughout the 70s and 80s with their war against graffiti which this rhetoric is still quite prominent it's it's it hasn't it's not dated. It hasn't stayed in the 80s in New York. There are still wars against graffiti waged um, in many city- cities around the world because, again, graffiti is perceived as being a very big problem. And what I'm trying to question in this chapter is why, you know, why do we have such a big problem with some images on a wall? Um, and and there are many potential reasons. but. Um, Another thing that happened in parallel, which again, I I present as a, as a form of appropriation of whatever was happening on the wall, was the artistic celebration of certain forms of graffiti and later of what became known as street art. So in many ways, this is a story of, in my opinion, a story of different types of um, creative expressions in public spaces, in cities, being co-opted and being appropriated to serve specific needs. One need is that to maintain urban order, 
Um, and therefore, graffiti got criminalized. And the other need is, you guessed it, to make money. <laughs> so uh, making money, this think galleries, art galleries, but also think municipalities, cities, through creative cities agendas, right? Where now street art is encouraged as a form of very controlled, but also sanitized creativity. And there are many researchers who are, and writers who are excellent at critiquing this form of like new muralism and these kind of the art washing of many urban districts in the name of this kind of edginess, which is nothing but. Um, So in a way, I suppose this chapter is a story of how this evolution happened and uh, a call to look at everything that is out there on city walls outside these categories or to bypass these categories because then we can repoliticize what we see. And I think that's very important. For sure, for sure. I absolutely agree. And, you know, as you're, you're, you're talking about New York and, you know, the reappropriation and appropriation of graffiti, I was also thinking, um, and here, please correct me because I might be wrong, um, you know, how graffiti is associated with rap and hip hop music and how that got distributed right from from United States into the world with a certain both cultural like weight, but also, you know, uh, it, it triggered a type of reaction against it. And then the two became associated, right? Graffiti and a certain type of music and a certain type of culture that, you know, some some cities and some some cultural groups welcomed and some didn't. Um, and Absolutely. It was very much a package. And, you know, again, um, some I'm not the expert in this, but some researchers argue that the, the fact that graffiti and beatboxing and um, hip hop music got lumped together wasn't as uh, organic, it didn't develop as organically as we are told. Um, And in fact, it was kind of a more uh, instrumentalized or curated process to then export these as a cultural product altogether. Um, But there are so many other things happening around this or outside this. And this is one of the things, I think this is one of the main objectives of the book for me is to draw attention to everything else. Okay, we start from graffiti. Graffiti got us here. It's still super important and interesting. And there are people out there doing amazing creative stuff in producing graffiti, being very experimental with it, curating graffiti, researching, and so on, documenting. Um, but there's so much else. And if, if we think about the visual culture of cities, um, there are many other elements that I believe we should pay attention to and that are equally as interesting and that have perhaps even more potential to kind of disrupt orders of capitalist authority and any kind of dominant orders, power structures in cities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I'm itching for an example here. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, curious of what you have in mind. Uh, I'm thinking, like, maybe music, but I don't know. I want to hear your your example here. Uh, well, I, for sure. Okay, yes. Uh, if I'm, I'm still just thinking in terms of surfaces and inscriptions, um, but, you know, of course, mm, so one, one example um, that I could think of now is protest signage, I think is a very interesting one to consider and in terms of temporary mobile signs, but also uh, marks that are created on city surfaces and walls, more permanent signs. Um, I think it can tell us so much about bodies and um, the occupation of space and, again, struggles for the right to the city, struggles for occupation, for visibility, and so on. Um, And also, I think another very interesting one is to look at non-human occupations and creations and the politics of that, again, are very relevant, I think, in today's world. So to look at everything that grows on surfaces, to look at the ways in which the elements alter surface matter, because we design buildings and we create the city in a way that we kind of pretend that we're in charge, (laughs) we're in control, and we put that material there and it will just stay that way and we can maintain it and kind of control it. But we can't, and, you know... The sun, the heat, um, vibration, pollution, noise, humidity, wind, they all contribute to the evolution of this surface matter and they are political actors as well. So, you know, yes, think about the graffiti tag sitting next to and on top of and underneath um, the fungi. The, they create the surface cape, right? They create it together. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm also thinking, as you say, fungi, you know, I'm also thinking, you know, of the, you know, maybe like all these vines, right, that that would, would go through through a wall, right, and would, would break it or add to it or, you know, would what would that say and, you know, what would that communicate to 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 certain audiences um, yeah and you know with, with that um i think we're, we're kind of edging towards a chapter three um entitled law and graffiti property crime and the surface commons and here we're we're going more towards a a detailed conversation about the legal aspects involving graffiti and urban surfaces and it looks the, the chapter looks closely at the fluid dynamic between uh, private property and public order and takes surface occupation as their meeting point. And you mentioned the surface commons as an important social concept, and I think it would benefit our conversations to get more detail on, on this, um, as because I also see it connected, of course, with the surface capes in a way. Yeah, so... Um... This chapter, I suppose, has two main objectives. On the one hand, like you mentioned, I wanted to really dive deeply into 
how the law articulates the problem of graffiti. Like, what is it about graffiti that law picks up on? And so, you know, I looked at legal language, mostly from the UK, to see how they define a sign. And they say, you know, it's any type of marking, scratching, drawing, etching, uh, that you can do on a relevant surface. And then they define the relevant surface as any surface that is within the pub, accessible from within the public realm or visible, even if it's from within the private realm, if it's visible, it's still a relevant surface. So this means that if I'm, for example, in a train and I go through a tunnel, I don't even have to be in a tunnel. I'm in a train and I see outside on the train tracks, I see graffiti, that's still a relevant surface, even if I can't access it. That's not publicly accessible realm, right? Because it belongs to the transport company. So I was looking at all of these details to kind of understand how the law deals with graffiti, but perhaps the discussion that would be relevant more broadly in this chapter, not just to like graffiti and law geeks, uh, (laughs) is the discussion on what you already mentioned, the surface commons, and thinking more about different ways in which law and space are intertwined. And upon thinking about it and analyzing it, I realized that the the way in which law deals with graffiti is to... It defines it as as two different things. On the one hand, it is damage to private property. And perhaps this is the most important also kind of visceral reaction that people get against graffiti. It is like damaging or like inscribing, doing something to property that's not yours. So I try to dismantle this a bit and to question why do we uphold the right to private property more than the right to collective expression, for example. Um, So on the one hand, you have the protection of private property. And on the other hand, you have the regulation of public order. So graffiti is a crime of behavior as well. It's a form of anti-social behavior. In the UK and many other countries have similar legal designations for graffiti as um, a performative crime. So we're not talking about the result. We're not talking about the image here, but we're talking about the process of doing graffiti. And and so between these, there's this kind of idea that we have to protect private property and public order. But what I'm trying to say in this chapter is that if we analyze what actually takes place on walls and surfaces between, imagine, imagine a wall, okay? So maybe it's the wall on your high street or it's the wall... Um, it's a wall facing your local park or the front of your local train station. And 
It's a wall you're familiar with, and you've seen it in different iterations. You've seen many different lives of this wall. Maybe you've seen it getting tagged. Maybe you've seen it getting cleaned or someone painted over the tags or you've seen some sort of dialogue and evolution happening there. Now, if you imagine all of these different lives of this wall as accumulating materially, you know, every tag has a thickness, <laughs> a material thickness, and even the removal of matter, if you wash a wall, is still a contributor to this. Or the example you were giving earlier about the ghost mural in Montreal, right? So there's kind of a materiality here that keeps accumulating. And what I'm arguing in this chapter is that this materiality is a form of commons. And I will explain what this means in a second. Um, so it's a form that bypasses and defies, in a way, these understandings of private property that we need to protect and public order that we also need to protect. And there's something else instead that happens in the middle. So there's a thickening of the surface. And this is quite a powerful idea, I think, to imagine all surfaces as having, as being spans and volumes, as having thicknesses. And what I say when I mean a commons here is a type of space that whose designation doesn't depend on its ownership, but rather it depends on its use. So no matter who owns the wall that we're imagining and working with here in our little exercise, the fact that several bodies, agents, people, non-people use it makes it a commons. And that is super powerful for us to think about urban life and to think about how we have space in the city and how we're excluded for, from certain spaces and we're allowed to be in other spaces. But here is evidence of how we can write ourselves into space no matter who it technically belongs to, right? We're living in, particularly in Western societies, we're living in urban environments that are becoming increasingly hostile, that are becoming securitized, privatized, surveilled, controlled, exclusionary from so many different points of view, segregated. So here is a type of space, this surface, that can give us a clue, it shows us a way to resist against that. It shows us that we can make a commons together through occupying space, maybe by inscribing it, maybe through putting up a political poster, maybe through putting up a graffiti tag or a notice board or a community plaque communicating something that is important, not because the local authority said so, but because it's important maybe for me and my group of 
local people or friends. That's what I mean by the commons. I, I hope that makes sense. Of course, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm thinking of, of how this making space, right, and, and inscribing the presence onto the surface that accumulates thickness also creates a type of memory and a type of, of like, it, it has the, the, a stay power or power of stay, if that makes sense, into the... Um, you know the the local memory and sometimes international too right the 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 life of of that surface right becomes something else into into people's memory and i think that's also very powerful in maybe in this conversation absolutely um surfaces are archives they are collectively produced archives of urban culture mhm for sure, for sure, and you know, since we we've got to 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 this, and I think it's a it's a great point to to jump into uh, Leak Street London, legal walls and deep surfaces, and not only the chapter which the whose title I just mentioned, but you know, it's it's a it's an amazing exemplar, right, of the production of a surface common and a multimodal space of visual and material surfacing, as you say on page one fifty nine. And the pictures were amazing and they play a super important role in the chapter. But, you know, for audience's sake, I just wanted to ask you to to describe a little bit Leak Street London and to tell us um, how you see it as the perfect example for the manifesto that, that follows this chapter. Um, dear all non-Londoners, imagine... Um, I'll tell you my first experience of visiting this space. And it was pre-smartphones. Um, and I had just arrived in London. I was very disorientated. And, you know, I've, I had a bit of a um, fear of the big city, right? Um, and I had booked to go to this gig whose address was in this place called League Street. Um, and I got there and I... I got there and this is we're talking about this enormous tunnel underneath a train station that is completely covered in graffiti and when I say completely covered in graffiti you have to imagine letter-based wild style so we're not talking murals we're talking text-based graffiti everywhere (laughs) it's it's a it's a full graffiti ecology right so I arrive in this space, and it was it was evening time when I was supposed to go there for that gig. And I arrived to this space, and I was <laughs> completely overwhelmed, scared. What is this? Uh, didn't understand anything, but also super attracted to it. Um, and I think maybe that was the first moment when I kind of decided that I wanted to investigate that space more. So... Um, Leak Street is the biggest legal graffiti location in London. And I'm sure wherever you are in the world listening to this, you will have a similar location in your city, which a place which is this kind of hall of fame, which even if it's not technically legal, will be at least tolerated as a place where graffiti writers can go paint and practice and develop, right? Um, so my investigation into Leak Street and what prompted this chapter 
was a project that is now 10 years old. I can't even believe it. Um, which is called 100 Days of Leak Street, where I went back to the tunnel for 100 consecutive days um, to photograph the same 10 walls because people were painting there so much that the walls would change every day. <laughs> yes, amazing. Really amazing because it showed so much. It taught me so much about how how we can make surfaces, you know, and how not not how we can how we can how we make cities, how we make urban life, how we make atmospheres and experiences. And there was so much life there. There was so much life in these changes. And and then so the easiest way to actually see what we're talking about now is if you Google hundred days of leak street. You'll see the project. I've made gifts from it. So each of the 10 frames has a gif of 100 consecutive frames of the 100 consecutive days. And it's amazing because you can just see the graffiti going on top of each other. And then also that prompted me to think of the thickness of these layers of paint, right? Um, and there is a photo in the book of kind of a slab of paint that I took from Leak Street. And there are many other places in the world that will be similar. In fact, I try, I'm trying to say that every surface is the same. So where you can actually see, like you, you tear it off the wall and you see an accumulation of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of layers of paint. And that's a super interesting space, like that slab of thick paint, thick surface that's made by so many different hands. That's the commons. That's, you know, I have so many questions that I want to ask of that space. That's what I'm exploring here. Like, you know, who owns that? Um, who, who has a right to it in many ways? Um, what even is it? What do we call it? I don't know. It's a it's a super interesting space. And so, yes, Leak Street um, is a very important and dear place in London to me. But I am sure most listeners, wherever you are, you'll be able to find very similar locations in your cities and in, in the cities you are familiar with as well. Yeah, I, th I think so. I would, I would definitely agree with that. And I think maybe Leak Street is just more like the accumulation, right? And the size, maybe it's more, um, you know, iconic, for lack of a better word. But I'm sure all major cities have have something um, to that extent where artists can can come together, right? And can form communities and practice as well. Um, and, you know, that brings us to, to the manifesto at the end. I, I found it fascinating and, you know, I'm, I thought it's a, it's a powerful conclusion to, to the book. And I would love to hear more about it and even have some quotes out of it read to, to our listeners, if you, if you don't mind. Um, I was thinking of doing just that right now. <laughs> your question, I thought um, maybe it would be good to just read a bit from this manifesto and then maybe offer some comments, some final comments on it. But um, yeah, let me just read. 
The right to the surface is unique but, but manifold. Its energy is singular, yet its traction comes from multitudes. The right to the surface is a right to visibility, inclusion, and participation. The right to be clear and to be here. The right to the surface is a right to appropriation and use, irrespective of ownership entitlements and property certificates. Its authority is self-validating and empowering. A right to spatial production and enactment of dissent and an enfranchisement for the urban dweller in front of corporate and institutional interests. The right to the surface is a contestation of private property and a production of spaces for collective use. It is a moral and political claim to access and participation, hijacking and appropriation. It is a right to break the law. The right to the surface is additive and productive, not selective and exclusive. It is the right of more, of all, to write, show and be seen instead of none or a selected few. The right to the surface is the right to produce urban art, to decide the image of the city, and to contest its regimes of regulation. It is the right to become and to remain minor, mundane, category-less, and anesthetic. The right to the surface stacks, delights, annoys, undermines, and empowers. The right to the surface is a right to unpoliced displays and to value surfaces as archives of urban culture. The right to the surface is the right to the city. This is how the book ends. Amazing. It's a very powerful conclusion, as I was saying. <laughs> you know, And um, I don't know, was it um, hard? Was it, I, I don't know, I'm just... I'm asking about the the writing process of, of the manifesto, I guess. Um, it I think it came out all at once, <laughs> and then uh, it was uh, refined a bit. Uh, it went through a few stages of being refined, but it felt quite important, I think, to end. And the whole book is very, it's argumentative, it's positioned. It is not a book that pretends to be objective. Um, I don't think there's anything to be objective about. We, we, need, we need to speak truth to power. We, need, we have urgent things to deal with in cities. So there's no, I don't think there's any room to be wishy-washy, uh, pre- pretend objective. So the book is very unapologetically taking the stance in this way. And so I felt like, ending on this note was quite important Um, and again in terms of the relevance of this work you know I don't want this to be a volume that gathers dust on some you know university library which university libraries are very important spaces but um this is a book that should be out there in the streets. And in fact, since it came out, I've been taking several photos of it out in the streets, you know, um, and thinking of it as as an object in the city, as an urban object. So um, this, I think the language of the manifesto as um, 
something that speaks about vision, a vision of a future something, a a call to change, a call to radical change. These were important attitudes to have in the book. I absolutely agree. And, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to take a picture uh, with the book and a mural or, you know, a graffiti a tag. Beautiful. Yes, we could. Let's turn it into a um, meme. <laughs> I mean, you know, unless you want to, that was not my intention. It was just to say that um, it's also an object that travels, right? And and can be used in, in so many uh, spaces and you know, in so many contexts of, of conversation that it, it wants to start, right? Yes, yes. Um, it wants to start conversation. Yes, that's beautiful. That's great. And, you know, we, we've taken a lot of your time. So I, I just have one last question. Um, and that is, um, what are you working on right now? What are your cu- current projects? Um, what, what should we expect coming out very soon? Um, maybe not very soon. <laughs> Soonish. Um, <laughs> There are, I would say, a couple of directions that I'm looking at right now. Mm. So, um, as you said in the beginning, I'm now based at the University of Melbourne. So I'm recording from London today, Um, but I live in Melbourne these days. And one of my projects is very much Melbourne-based. And I'm working on this with um, another researcher. His name is Chris Parkinson. And we are doing a project where we are looking at the kind of the histories and the cultures of street postering in Melbourne, because um, the, Melbourne has a, a, a street poster culture unlike any other city in the world that we can think of or that we're familiar with or as far as we know. So we're trying to investigate that. And um, that material is absolutely incredible, what's coming out of that. Um, we are very, very excited about it. And that's that's something that's in the making. Um, but I suppose on a less local level and m- m- an approach that is in fact trying to delocalize and trying to kind of shake up our Western focused approaches to surface research again through graffiti, street art, these categories. Later this year, so we're recording this uh, right at the end of January 2024. Um, Later this year, I got a grant to go to Uganda in East Africa and do some research there on what I call the, the heritage value of urban visual culture. So to kind of try to look at what types of visual forms prevail in that particular environment and this is this is something that could develop in so many different ways you know if you think about each city that you're familiar with what kinds of visual specificity does it have you know how does it communicate which types of images does it promote support uh maintain censor and so on so I'm I'm going to go to Kampala, to the Ugandan capital, later this year to do that project there. And 
the framework for this is also something that I'm trying to establish more now, which I've recently termed urban visual justice. So to think about the ways in which images in cities are used and can be better used to support values of belonging and equity and justice and contestation and diversity and all of the things that we need to have better cities. Um, So what is the role of images in creating a sense of justice for urban dwellers? And that is, I think, you know, a bigger framework for future research that I'm trying to establish right now. That sounds extremely exciting and timely and very, very important. So I'm very much looking forward to to read about it and to, to see uh, products coming out of it and, you know, to, and to have you back on New Book Network, you know. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm not sure about a new book. <laughs> I, I think this one kind of took it out of me, but... But um, yeah, we'll see. And certainly, I think, and again, to anyone who's listening to this, experiment, you know, let's experiment more. Like, especially in academia, we're so stuck in the forms of output that we know we have to produce for our careers and our employability and so on. But I think it's, it's worth looking at other forms of outputs and like doing more fun things and working visually and working in a interdisciplinary inter multimodal way more with anything that we're interested in you know whether it's uh, a- any form of cultural output you know if you do humanities research let's play more i absolutely agree <laughs> And I encourage that. Um, but uh, thank you so much, Dr. Andron, for, for talking to us today. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to both participating, talking more, and, you know, seeing the experiments that, that come out of, of your further projects. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the wonderful conversation. And uh, looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Thank you.